Well, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 today. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles on the tables in the back of each, each section. You can grab one of those. Um, if you have somebody that needs a Bible, you can take one of these and give this to them. Um, and you can take one of these for yourself as well. Uh, these are, are for the taking for those, those who need one. Uh, so we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, I, I, I go to Starbucks a bit, um, probably too frequently. Um, I, I have the app, and so uh, that says a lot about the frequency of, of my visits to Starbucks. Um, I believe there were some worship team members that made a quick run. I won't say who, Gabe and Laura, but uh, made, made a run right before here. So they are frequent to Starbucks as well. How many of us are, are frequent Starbucks goers, right? We, we're a bit of coffee addicts. Um, so I, I like to sit in Starbucks and read and study and, and, and work in Starbucks. And, and I watch the baristas, and I'm just wowed at the number of things that they can juggle. I, I am very underqualified um, to, be, to, to be in that kind of line of work, right? They, they are trying to juggle too many things, uh, listening to too many different orders, trying to piece together these drinks uh, in all these mysterious combinations. I order a cup of coffee, but there are other people who order all kinds of, of strange combinations of things, right? And so, so I feel bad for them when, when they have to interpret these orders, right? Especially if you, you've, you've been in line behind somebody who hasn't really been to Starbucks before, right? And they don't know the right lingo and the right sizes and things like that, and they're holding up the line because they're not doing it right. But then you have that person who walks up and they know exactly what they want, um, and it is this strange combination of things, like a, a venti half-and-half half, 10 pumps vanilla extra whip, or a venti iced skinny hazelnut macchiato sugar-free syrup extra shot light ice no whip. That's, that's a drink, right? Um, the, the espresso iced with a dollop of foam on top, a double venti Frenchist roast in a plastic cup with extra whipped cream, uh, two volumetric ounces of sugar, four scoops of milk shake, of, of milkshake mixed stuff, four shots of espresso, four to six ounces of milk, 16 ounce cup full of ice blended, poured into a 12 ounce cup, top third of cup filled with cappuccino microphone. That sounds tasty, disgusting. I don't even know what that is, right? And so, so we have these complicated orders, right? And you're trying to, to make sense of all of this. You're trying to decipher this. And here the barista is trying to take this order and wondering what in the world do we add to this order you know, on this computer screen that will get such a drink. Things are hard to decipher. Things are presented in a complicated way. Things are presented in a way that requires interpretation. You have somebody that says something like a dollop of foam, and you have to interpret what that is and try to make what they're asking for. Many times in the academic world, we have PhD dissertations that are difficult to decipher and difficult to read. Even the titles are, are challenging. Here is one dissertation title in geology, and I have no idea how to even say all this. It's four sentences long. Detritil zircon evidence for mixing of Mazatzal province age detrius with Yavapi circa 1700 to 1740 millennia 
and older Detrius in circa 1650, Mazatzal province of central New Mexico, USA. That's a dissertation for you, right? Basically, the writer's saying he found some old rocks, right? There's, there's old rocks compared to older rocks, and, and that's what this is about. But the, the, the title is filled with all of this lingo and all of this jargon, and, and it's difficult to decipher. And so we get to something like Ephesians chapter 1, and we get to something that's kind of difficult to decipher. We're going to start in verse 3 and go through verse 14. And this is a passage of Scripture where there's a lot going on here. It's difficult to interpret. It's difficult to decipher. And thankfully, we have it in English because in Greek, these 12 verses are all one sentence. So we've got 12 verses that thankfully the translators have divided up into 12, uh, have divided up into sentences for us, 267 words, but it was all one long sentence. And so you're trying to decipher what is it that Paul is saying. This is the introduction, right? This is not the meat, the middle section of this letter. This is something that is just the introduction, presenting what it is he's going to be talking about in this letter to the church at Ephesus. One commentator says that the, pack, the, the passage covers virtually every topic in Christian theology. Can you imagine every topic in, in Christian theology is all packaged into these, these 12 verses? I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but not by much, because there is a lot packed in here. And so as you're, if you're reading through this in the original Greek, which I don't and most of us don't, but if you're reading through this in the original Greek, you want to just say, Paul, take a breath. But like, let's have some punctuation in here and, and, and try to take a breath so we can see what's really happening. Like, help the readers, help the translators, help us understand what's going on here. So we're going to read through this. And if at the end of it you feel like you're scratching your head unsure of what has really been said, then, then you're in good company, so don't stress out about that. But we're going to try to read through this and listen to what it is that Paul is telling the church here in Ephesus. What is it that he is saying about Jesus? What is it that he is saying about Christian theology and our understanding of who God is? What is he saying about the church? What is he saying to us as followers of Jesus? And so let's sort through this a little bit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with ever, every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to 
all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So that is a mouthful. Lots going on here. All of Christian theology in this one passage, possibly. As Paul is talking to the church, identifying who the church is, who it is that they follow, what they believe in, and who we are. And so there's a lot more that we can do. We can go verse by verse, line by line of this for the next 6 to 12 weeks, probably. We're just going to cram it all into today for now. But, but the main theme here is, in these opening verses, is this. It's what God has done for us in Christ. What God has done for us in Christ. We can sum it up in an oversimplified way that way. But for our conversation this morning, let's focus in on the last two verses. Let's look at, at verse 13 and 14 and narrow in here on this idea of the, the promise, the deposit that is guaranteeing our inheritance. Verse 13 again, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He phrased there, deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are, who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the message paraphrases, paraphrases it by calling the seal of the Holy Spirit calling it the first installment on what's coming. The first installment on what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us. And so there's this deposit that is guaranteeing something for us. It is a first installment. It is a, a payment towards something. In, in the NIV, it's deposits. In the NRSV, it's pledge. There's this idea that something is being given. It's, it's a legal term that's connected to this idea of earnest money. And so if you've been in a real estate agreement for, um, of purchasing or selling real estate, you have been a part of earnest money. This is what got all wacky with our real estate deal as, as a church last year because the earnest money was not delivered, and so we were out of contract, and that all the, the deal was legally off because the earnest money was not given. Earnest money is more than just a little deposit. It's, it's, a, it's more than just a guarantee. It's a partial payment toward the full amount, right? It obligates the buyer and the seller to be in a, a transactional relationship with one another. 
And so when there is earnest money that is placed, there is now a commitment to one another that this deal will go through. It's only a small amount of the sale price. It's only a percentage of it, but it's a commitment that the deal will follow through. There's a commitment that it will really happen. And so there's this idea of earnest money being given. And so Paul here applies this business term to our faith, to what it means to be God's people, this relationship between God and his people. And so the the experience of faith we have now is given by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we have this experience, we have this understanding, we have this presence of the Holy Spirit that now is a guarantee, is earnest money, is a gift, is, is a first installment of our relationship with God. And so Paul, Paul says that, that, that indeed it is earnest money. It's the first, first installment of what's coming. It's a reminder of, of we'll get everything that God has promised in the end. Everything that God has planned for us, the whole deal, everything will be given to us. This is just the first installments. And so have you ever thought about your life in Christ, our relationship with God, the faith that we have? Have you thought about that just as a first installments? In a way, this passage is saying that the highest experience of peace and joy in Christ it, it can be known in it, the highest level that can be known in this world is only a very small taste of what is to come. That what we experience now in the Christian life, what we experience in our faith now is only a very small taste, only a first installment of what's to come. How many of you are fans of ice cream? You like, like ice cream and you go to get ice cream, and they have those little plastic spoons, right? And you can sample as many of these ice creams that you want. And so you, you taste these different ice creams. You find the one that you like or just keep tasting them all. I don't know what your strategy is. But um, you use the little taster spoons, and you taste to see what is good and taste and see what it is that you really want, But the good news is that you can buy a full bowl with multiple scoops of that ice cream. You don't have to be satisfied with just the small little taster spoon. That's only the first taste, only the first installment. And so as we enjoy that big bowl of ice cream, we get the full thing. We don't have to be satisfied with just the small spoon. And what Paul is telling us is what we're experiencing all the things that, that, that we believe in and the promises that are given to us and the life that we have in Christ, that's just the taster spoon. That's just the small thing. That's just a little tease and an introduction of what can really be. That's the life that we have. It's only a small taste. that the things to come far outweigh the things that we experience now. Paul's saying that someday we're going to to eat with the big spoons. We're going to eat with the big bowl. 
and, and the bill for that has already been paid. This is what we wait for. There's a preacher and writer, Frederick Buchner, who, who expanded on the idea of this point of earnest money with, with this analogy. He says, this side of paradise, people are with God in such a remote and spotty way that their experience of eternal life is at best, at best, like the experience you get of a place approaching, the experience you get of a of place approaching it at night in a fast train. So you're going on a fast train, you're approaching this place, it's night, and you only see the occasional lights go whipping by and hear only the sound or two over the clatter of the rails. The rest of us aren't usually awake enough to see as much as that. We get just a glimpse of this picture. But he says the day will break and the train will pull into the station and the ones who have managed to stay with it will, will finally alight. That's the arrival at the station we call eternal life. And so we're on this train, traveling in the dark, occasionally getting a glimpse of something out the window kind of whipping by. And some of us have, have seen more than others. Some of us are just asleep on the train, not recognizing any of it. Some of us get little bits and pieces as we go. Some of us have those moments where, where a light shines and, and we see something as we approach. But none of us fully see what it is that we're approaching get little tastes of it. We get little glimpses of it. But there's something bigger and better than any of us could even imagine. And so what an image this is. You, you might hear the clatter of a train, and there's confusion, and there's dissonance, and, and we often have trouble matching what the Bible promises us about the Christian life with what we're experiencing in real life. We're on a train and we just hear the clattering and we can't really see what it is that we confess. We can't really see what it is that we believe in. We can't really see, which is faith, isn't it? This life doesn't seem to be much of a baseline for which the future life can be measured. But we have faith. In other words, the eternal life is not just version 2.0 of a, of a 1.0 version, right? If you're involved in software technology, there's always an upgrade, and, and oftentimes that upgrade is, is marginal, right? The next version of Microsoft Office has a few little things, but it's still just a word processor, right? There are things that are, 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 are changed from version to version. I just got a new phone over Christmas break, and I have the Samsung Galaxy 10. I had the Galaxy 6, and the difference between the two, one's faster, one has a better camera, it's got a lot more storage that's already full, it's got, you know, it's got some different things, but fundamentally it's the same thing, right? It's a smartphone. It still does the same thing. All my apps are the same, the functions are the same, it does it a little bit better. 
But now imagine that we're going from like smoke signals to a smartphone, right? And now that technology leap is fundamentally different, right? And we're leaping even further past that. We're somewhere in smoke signals in our understanding about the kingdom of God. Somewhere in smoke signals about understanding what God really has promised for us. Somewhere there in that haze and that confusion and lack of clarity is where we exist in our understanding of who God is and what he's calling us into. And we get little glimpses along the way and occasionally the, the smoke signal gets through and we get, we get little pieces. But there is this huge leap. We're not talking about just marginal, marginal incremental, ah, to be a little bit better. This is not version one to version two. This is something completely different. Beyond what we can even imagine. And so that is why Paul is, is opening his letter in this way with this, with this huge mouthful, this long one sentence, this run-on sentence talking about what the Christian life is. And faith, he argues, is often about believing beyond what logic or even our experience can really tell us. That faith is that the train is headed down the track and we can't really see fully what it is, but we have faith that it is going somewhere far better than we're at or far better than anything that we can ever imagine. Faith is, is communicating with smoke signals, knowing that there is something like a smartphone somewhere else. This faith is us continuing on this journey together, not really knowing exactly what it is we're walking into. And the things that we think that we have imagined about it don't even compare to the reality of what we're walking into. Now, the reality is, this is not something that is just completely in the future, something distant that we have to die and go off to. This is something that is in process now. That the kingdom of God is present now. If we could see through the smoke, see through the dark windows, see the lights going by, if we could see through all of that, we would see that we are very much in the kingdom now. Not just waiting for something to happen later. And these are the things that we cannot really comprehend, the things that we don't even understand. That the place that we're in now is incredibly beyond our wildest imagination. That God is here now. And so Paul tries in all of these sentences, or this one sentence, broken up for us, tries to give us this idea of, of these promises from God, the things that God is saying are available to us now. Things that, that define us now, things that we are now. And so there's several different words here that he lists out for us. He uses the word blessed in verse 3. This is, interestingly enough, a Greek word that has its its root in, in the word eulogy, 
we think of a eulogy as, as something that is, is a blessing or a praise that's given at the end of somebody's life. But Paul is, is inviting us to bless God, to eulogize God, because God has been blessed and has blessed us from the very beginning. All this blessing going back and forth. God blesses as God is blessed. And so, so often we think of blessings as, as gifts, right? I've been blessed with a job, a family, a home, prosperity, whatever it is that we've been blessed with. But, but the reality of receiving a blessing from God is really that we are receiving God himself. That is our blessing. It's not my material possessions. It's not my health. It's not my physical environment. My blessing is a blessing of receiving God himself, that, that God blessed us with his presence. And so the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly realm that Paul talks about here, he's not talking about something that we're waiting for later. He's talking about what's available to us now, that, that God is not distant, God is not remote, God is not disconnected from us, but God is here and available now. That God is with us in our midst. And so when we are blessed, we are blessed with the presence of God. Like, sit on that for a moment, for like that mind-blowing moment. Like what does that mean, that God is present with us now? We're blessed with that. But then Paul says in verse 4 that we are also chosen, we, that, that God chose us in Christ. And so the question for us is, is to what purpose is our life dedicated? What is our purpose in life? Paul makes it clear that God created us and he chose humans for our particular purpose. He chose people to reflect his image. He chose people to reflect his image to all of creation. And so humans were made to be holy and blameless, made to be set apart. And despite our brokenness and despite our sin and the, despite him knowing all of that about us, he still chooses us. We're chosen. Someone just needs to hear that today. Because your life, you have been rejected. You have been left out. You have been excluded. And Paul says you are chosen. You are blessed with the presence of God. And you are chosen by God for his purposes. And then verse 5, he uses this word destined. He, he destined us for adoption as his children. This word destined comes from a word that means a, to set a limit or mark or a boundary. It's, it reminds us of a destination, right? When we travel, we have a destination. It's the goal of the journey. And here we have this echo and this this reference back to Israel's story. We think about God choosing his people and giving them the mark as his children and then setting up boundaries for them and then giving them a mission. And so Paul is writing to churches that are, are largely Gentile churches, and Paul reminds them that they too are chosen. They're a chosen people. 
and through the grace of God, through Jesus, they are destined. God does this for a specific purpose, a purpose that's repeated several times in, in Paul's passage here. And the purpose is to bring glory to God, to the praise of God's glorious grace. So we've been chosen, we've been destined from the beginning to reflect God's glory. We have no glory of our own to offer. It's not about our abilities. It's not about who we are. It's not about our, our gifts or, or, or what we bring. It's not what we offer. It's about the glory of God. And that is our desire. That is what we long for. And then in verse 6, he says that it is bestowed or freely given. It's a word that only appears elsewhere in the New Testament when Gabriel greets Mary as God's favored one. Paul uses the verb here to, to express God's action of bestowing his grace, his favor on us. He bestows grace. It's his favor, his pleasure in us, his delight in us, in giving us what we could never imagine or guess. This is freely given to us. This is a major theme throughout Ephesians. This idea of God's grace, that we receive what we don't deserve. That, that we're favored by God. We're chosen by God, not because of our own efforts, but simply because God loves us. God loves us. Not in our own efforts. God loves us. He wants to transform us into his image. And grace makes this transformation possible. God meets us right where we are and draws us back to him. And then in verse 7, we have this word, lavished. This is one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it frequently. God isn't stingy with his grace. We think about lavishing something, like, like it is lavished on us. God isn't stingy with it. Through the lavished love of God in Christ, through the blood of his cross and the triumph of his resurrection, we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Verses 7 and 8. And so it's this grace in Christ, that enables us to live a new life that is transformed in the presence and preparing for eternity. And then he has other words, like made known in verse 9, that all with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. So we don't have to be in the dark about this. He has made this known. And Paul is using this word mystery to refer to God's plan for salvation for humanity and, and God's creation. It's a mystery that can only be discerned through wisdom and insights. Eugene Peterson defines wisdom this way. It says it's truth assimilated and digested. We receive truth. We assimilate that truth, and we digest that truth. That is wisdom. And so God makes known to us what is needed through Scripture, through our Christian experience, 
wisdom and insight gained through Scripture and our experience of God can open our imagination, open up the aperture to see beyond just the darkness and see what it is that God is doing around us. Wisdom allows us to look out the window of that train and see the lights passing by with more clarity, to see more of what it is that God is doing here and now. And then finally, verse 10, he talks about unity or, or gathering up. And so what can we imagine when we embrace God's wisdom and insight? We see that God's plan is to gather things, gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so Paul is inviting us to imagine what it would be like to be in this new reality in which heaven and earth are gathered together under the rule of Christ. What Jesus calls the kingdom of God, that is what Paul is calling for us to imagine, to open our eyes to, that our future isn't out there, but right here in Christ. That Paul goes on to say in, in verse 11 that this is the purpose to which we have, ha have been destined to live for the praise of his glory in light of this new reality. This is our reality. This is what we are experiencing now. That God is gathering up all things in Christ. That we are chosen. That we are destined. That we are made a part of this gathering in Christ. Bringing us together. This is what we have been called to, all marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. So this is the earnest money that is given. This is what is given. The down payments. That God gives us the Spirit as, as a pledge that this new reality is coming to bear through us. And this is our hope. This is what we gather for and, and celebrate and remember every Sunday. And we're only seeing such a small piece of it. This small gift, this initial offering, this down payment, this earnest money. And so we pray that God will open our eyes that we will have wisdom, that we will have clarity, that we will be able to see what it is that he's doing around us and be able to participate in what it is that he's doing among us as he gathers all things in Christ. Let's be standing together. I want to be able to look out the window of that train and see more than just a flashing light. I'm thankful for those flashing lights. It's more than what most people see. And so we're going to spend some time at the table. If you're, if you're new here, we have tables prepared on the sides here for communion. And as, as we break the bread and we take the cup, we pray that Jesus will be revealed to us in greater clarity.
that we'll have a greater image of who he is and what he is doing through us and in us and around us. It's in the breaking of bread that Jesus is revealed. We see who he is. And so we share in communion together. This is also a time for us to move around and pray with one another and pray, pray for one another. Oftentimes we just find ourselves in a fog or just asleep on the train altogether. And we need to pray that, that we'll wake up a little bit, that we'll get out of our nap, we'll look out the window and see what it is that God's doing around us. So I encourage you to, to seek out prayer for whatever it is that you're, you're dealing with, whatever situation you're in. And I, I, I encourage you to approach other people and pray for them. We know what's going on in other people's lives. We're in life groups together. We're in class together. We, 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 have, we have prayer requests that are sent out to us. We know what's happening in one another's lives to a certain degree. And so go pray for that person. That may be the flicker of light that they have this week looking out the window of the train. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the blessings that you give us. We thank you for gathering all things together in Christ. We thank you for this opportunity to worship, this opportunity to remember Christ. God, as we break this bread and take this cup, God, would you reveal to us in greater detail who you are? Would we see more of your son? More of your spirit through this time? It's in Jesus' name we pray.